Thank you, snowboarding. Hey friends, welcome along to another edition of the Thank You Snowboarding Podcast, the podcast that is documenting UK snowboard culture from its earliest beginnings of handmade snowboards up in the Highlands to Mia Brooks crushing it at X Games. Uh, it's been done in association with the Snowboard Asylum, who have been keeping snowboarders in the right kit with the best advice for the best part of, I think it's 30 years, possibly. I think there might even be another anniversary coming up. But anyway, the Snowboard Asylum, keeping snowboarders snowboarding for a generation. There aren't many businesses that can say they've been doing that. So this week... We're getting into it with a guest of mine, a guy called Alan Orgill, known locally to his customers and friends as Oggy, who basically throughout my time running the chalet and before that I had a little spell working for Airwalk for a part alongside Johnny Weeks, the legend that is Johnny Weeks, and for a very short spell on my own. And Oggy was just a big supporter of snowboarding and always turned up with a positive attitude. And then when I moved on to having the chalet in France, he was always sending people to us. He was always recommending us anything we sent him, he'd display in the shop. And uh, the people that came from his shop to stay with us never had a bad word to say about him. He lives and breathes snowboarding from the technology that goes into it to the experiences that you have as a snowboarder and I think his shop called Lifestyle certainly made it possible for lots of people to find snowboarding and to keep on snowboarding because they had the the right experience they weren't sort of missole kit that didn't work for them they weren't given advice that was wrong Oggy made sure that the people that came to him to find out about snowboarding found out about snowboarding the right way and that's why I wanted to get him on and it's an interesting story because I didn't realise he goes back in the game as far as he does and I think he mentions that he has attained the ripe old age of 69 and he is still at it. Um, the day after we had this conversation, he was going out to Les Arc to go snowboarding for a week. And uh, when he arrived in Bourg Saint-Maurice, he went over and took a shot of the old chalet as it stands now, sadly empty and on the or certainly was on the market. I don't know if it still is anymore, but yeah. He's a guy that just lives and breathes snowboarding and is so passionate about it and has done it from dry slope to trips away. He hasn't done it in the glitz and the glamour or any of the headlines or anything. He's just been in the trenches every day for a long, long time. And as I say, it affected a lot of people's experiences of snowboarding. And that's why I wanted to get him on. So please do. He can talk and talk and talk snowboarding. So this is a long one rocks in over an hour long but I hope you enjoy this he's an interesting guy with a lot to talk about and I think there's a few things that are particularly British about his way of going about it and there aren't that many people who have owned shops who have really dug in for this long so anyway here we go Alan Orgill also known as Oggy well one of the things that I thought of when I knew I was going to do this I thought 
my story is not a story of endless drunken nights in the mountains doing seasons. Mine's more no. about my life and how it took a path that no way could I have ever imagined it was going to go down that direction. Yeah. Right? Because all my qualifications in electronics, physics, business management, electronic systems specific. So I went straight into the telecoms industry. Yeah. And I was in that I was in that for years and absolutely loved every minute of it. Oh really? So you weren't kind of anchoring for something else? I loved it. I loved it. And in the end, I was working on a system that was a brand new dual computer, dual bus system. And the two computers spoke to each other so that if anything catastrophic went down on the system, they would immediately switch over. And even people on the telephones wouldn't even click. It was instantaneous. Right. And we were fault finding and commissioning on those. And I loved going into work every single day. And so where where was this? Like set some set some background. And um, where did you sort of grow up and where did where were you then? All around Nottingham area, Nottingham Ilkeston area. Right. And and uh, going to college and so and, and I joined the company Plessy Telecommunications as it was then, which yeah. was one of the world's biggest telecom companies. You know, we were supplying equipment all over the world. Yeah. And uh, but eventually I ended up working on this system and you can imagine two computers not just mirroring each other but constantly talking to each other. Yeah. And so it was quite a complex system. So much so when we were fault finding on them, we were allowed thinking time. We could go away, sit quietly somewhere to try and think your way through <laughs> to solve these problems. You see what I mean? Yeah. And uh, but but at the time, I, I enjoyed it so much. I got stuck into it, but I was constantly being harassed to become management, and I just did not want that at all. I was even called um, uh, uh, like a stumbling block for other people right. because they didn't think that they could promote people who were below me above me. They thought that it it wasn't the dumb thing to do. But in the end, I just stuck at my guns. I was enjoying it. And they did promote a young lad who's an apprentice. He eventually became my senior manager. (laughs) But it didn't bother me. My ego didn't bother at all. But then one night I sat at home and I thought, am I an idiot? I'm sitting here. I'm enjoying my job. Maybe this is what you need to do to become an adult. Take on more responsibility. (laughs) So that's a lie. I mean, never do. <laughs> that's what they tell you, but that's what you should never do. That. But I thought yeah, it's all part of growing up. Yeah, whatever, whatever. So I went in the next day and I accepted the job. Right. So yes, I got a big step up in salary. Yes, I got status. Yes, I got my own office. I absolutely hated it because right. instead of enjoying my job now, I was solving people's interpersonal disputes mm-hmm. i was having to get equipment in on time to get finished systems out on time i was sorting out people's overtime it was horrible i hated it and so i stuck up with that for a few years but then the company was going to go through a massive reshuffle all right and so in a restructure so i thought well if i don't do something now i never will and i just read a book so i'm a, prof- a prolific reader and i've always got three or four books on the go at any one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just read a sentence and it really struck me. It said that most people climb the ladder of success only to get to the top to realise it's leaning against the wrong wall. And I thought, <laughs> right, that's me. Yep, come on, let's do something. So I applied for voluntary redundancy. And okay, fair enough, a few days later, one of the super senior managers called me in his office, which is, wasn't unusual, 
and he sat me down and he asked me through the systems how we go in how's everything you know do i need anything no and then near the end he said why do you want to leave and i sat and thought for a minute and the way i described it to him was it was just like i was sitting on a grass bank in the sunshine listening to bird song and the river flowing past me, fast flowing river flowing past me. That's how my old job was. My new job was just as if somebody pushed me into that fast flowing river. Yes, I'm keeping my head above water, but I hated every second of it because there was so much out of my control. And he just smiled at me and said, I don't blame you. (laughs) And so he ensured (laughs) that I managed to leave. And at the time, I was really into windsurfing, even though it was new, pretty new into the country. I was heavily into windsurfing. We'd go every opportunity. We'd even, we were that ridiculous about windsurfing. We'd even go to the coast or to a lake when there was no wind just to stand there and look out. You know, <laughs> and, you, and you'd be standing there with a whole row of other idiots looking out, you know, hopefully yeah. looking for wind. What, um, and, what, year, what sort of time are we talking? Oh, God, this was mid-80s. Right. And... Uh, and, but then I realised that one of the biggest importers of windsurfing kit was only just down the road from me. So I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I applied for a job, went for an interview. They turned me down. Hmm, OK, I don't know what I'm <laughs> going to do now. <laughs> and then I thought, hang on, I'll go back again. And I tried to explain to them that I was looking for a complete lifestyle change, not career progression. Yeah. And it did the trick. And they took me on. And I took a massive drop in salary. Of course. But being surrounded by all the latest um, windsurf kit every day was just fantastic. Absolutely. Again, I'd got that buzz, you know, you're back again, you're enjoying life. And uh, and then I realised that they were a highly in- innovative uh, company because right. at the time you fastened a boom onto a mast using rope. They yep. were the first company to bring in clamp-on boom front ends. Right, the right. first company to bring in what's called RAF sails. The sails originally were just like a flat piece of cloth. RAF sails, rotational asymmetric foils, they were taking on aeroplane technology. So it's the same shape as an aeroplane wing. So they were incredibly more efficient. They were the first company to bring in monofilm sails rather than the woven fabrics. They were the first company to bring in flex stems, a suspension unit for mountain bikes. They were the first company to bring in full suspension mountain bikes. And they were one of the first companies to bring in snowboards into the UK. Who was this? Uh, Ultrasport UK. Of course, Ultrasport, yeah. Yeah. And uh, But I realised at the time that as far as I'm concerned, the pioneers of snowboarding in the UK have got to be Jeremy Sladen, the Chaos Crew, and uh, Al Fleming, the late Gus Gillard up in Aviemore. Because as far as I know, there was nobody else snowboarding before that lot, unless somebody corrects me. So how did you, like, obviously, if Ultrasport started bringing in snowboards, how yeah. did you then know about sort of the what was happening with well, people in Jeremy the UK Sladen, doing it? Well, it was Jeremy Sladen who they took on as the right. snowboard rep and expert. Yeah. Right. So there we are, starting to bring snowboards in. But I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent now. Go on. My dad was in the Second World War. He was captured by the Germans, shipped over the Po Valley in Italy, where he's a prisoner of war. Mm-hmm. He escaped into Switzerland, where he met my mum, right, right. his little Swiss miss, as he called her. Uh, <laughs> the French resistance smuggled him out to the UK, carried on after the war. She oh, went right. over and they got married. Right? Yeah. My dad used to work, work seven days a week, he was a coal miner, to not only earn the money, but to earn the time off. 
so that during the six weeks holidays, we could go for the whole six weeks touring through Europe and then spending a couple of weeks in Switzerland uh, for nice. my mum, right, with all the relatives. Yeah. And it's quite funny because I'd come back after six weeks holidays as a, a little kid and all the other kids who had to stand up in front of the class and explain what you'd done over the six weeks holidays. Yeah. And, of course, they were saying, went to the park, played football, went to Skegness, went to Matlock or whatever. And yeah. I was going, oh, yeah, we went through Schaffhausen and Garmisch Partenkirk and, and the Rhine Falls <laughs> and Oberammergau and Luxembourg and, and because we'd done all of this. How amazing. But then we, we ended up going over Christmas period a few times. And my Swiss uncle was, uh, because it was national conscription there, and my Swiss uncle was at one time a ski instructor in the Swiss Army. Mm -hmm. So he taught me to ski. Right. Now, back at Ultrasport, these snowboards are coming in, and I'm thinking, I'll have some of that. Yeah, but I at bet. the time, in the UK, there was only a handful of dry slopes, right? Yep. Most of them didn't allow snowboarding at all. But luckily for me... Swaddling Coat Ski Centre was just down the road. And as far as I know, they were one of the first dry slopes to embrace snowboarding. Yep. And there was a lad just started teaching down there, a lad named Julian Palmer. Now, he had some right. very strange methods of teaching. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it, it got nothing to, to build on, you know, because no. it, it was so new. And uh, so all you had to do is you had to be able to do link turns. Yep. You had to be able to use this rope toe which mm -hmm. when you can't snowboard using a rope toe is ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, and then when you could do your link turns, you, <clears> you could then go on to the uh, main slope. And Swaddling Coat Ski Centre was a 120-metre slope, uh, all Dendex, of course. Yeah, um, of course. But, but we didn't see any magazines, no videos, nothing like that. So we didn't know what to do. Yeah. So we started doing stupid ground tricks and just prattling around like a bunch of idiots. And it was not until years later that I started building some kickers and other people did. And uh, you got people like Johnny Kirkham was there. He was a beautiful rider, lovely smooth rider. Mm. And uh, and then built boxers. And then a lad named Liam Wright built the most perfect dry slope kicker I've ever seen in my life. Really? He used CNC technology to design and build it. Right. And somebody once said to him, it's a five-footer, but a beautiful transition. Yeah. And somebody once said to me, what's it like going off that big kicker? And I said, honestly, if you close your eyes, you don't know you're hitting it. Not like the thump when you hit a cheese wedge. <laughs> and it was fantastic. But then you saw more and more young lads were coming on and they were doing the link turns and then coming to the main slope. And I thought, these lads want to go off the kicker. They've only just learned to do a few blinking yeah. link turns. You've got to build up first before you do it. And then I thought, but hang on, no. This is how it progresses. This is, they see us doing that and they want to do that and more. Yeah. And there was one young lad, oh, it, it used to scare everybody. It could barely <laughs> do link turns. You thought he was going to fall over before he even hit the kicker. But in the air, he was superb. Yeah. They very rarely landed clean, but that's not the point. <laughs> but we rode there on a regular basis. And then we found out a few years later a couple of chaps were, uh, got a grant from the council to turn an old slag heap into a, a ski slope. Oh, right. So Yeah, so we went down, had a look at that. They built um, a, a surface called Astragalanda was on the nursery slope. I think it's Japanese. Haven't heard of that. On the, it, it's, it's weird. It's like these round bulbous shape. Each individual bristle was like a round bulbous shape, right? And you've got tiny rugby ball shapes of 
P-Techs that were spread out on the slope. So when really? you carved on it, it literally sprayed up like it was snow. Yeah. And it gave it and felt very much like snow. And uh, uh, But the, nursery, uh, the main slope, they did in a cheap version of it. And so Will started riding there. You got to, we were riding at Swad, riding at Cossel, and you got uh, Robin at Nonstop in Nottingham at the time. Yep. You know, uh, he, him and his crew came down, and in fact, he organised a brilliant night there. He had DJs, he had bands on, and uh, he had competitions. And we just thought life couldn't get any better than this. Unfortunately, I had my worst snowboarding accident ever there. You know, because there was no routine maintenance of the slope. Right. And there was a big bump in the middle of the slope, which you could use as a kicker, but we put a kicker on top of that. Yeah. So 10 foot in the air on plastic slope is not a good idea, but that's what we did. <laughs> and uh, and I landed once, and people said afterwards that they saw sparks flying up from the edge of my board, Shit. which spun me around, as I, just as I'd landed, spun me around. I went downhill backwards and landed on my back. Yeah. And, uh, and the way I was, the toe edge of my board was flat on the floor, but my shoulders were facing upwards. I'd twisted so hard. Oh, I'd, I'd got concussion, and then I realised I couldn't feel my legs. And oh, so, shit. of course, no, yeah. And then ambulance came along, carted me off in hospital. Many scans and x-rays later, the consultant came to see me. He said, you haven't broke your back. We don't think you've damaged your spinal cord. We think it's something called spinal shock. Effectively, you're like giving your spinal cord a dead leg. And he said, hopefully, the feeling will come back. If not, we'll have to have a word with you. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, here we go. I'm, I'm very stoic about things. If this is the big one, there's nothing I can do. You know, no. They did say if it had been permanent, uh, my attitude would have changed a few days later. You know, But yeah. luckily, a few hours later, pins and needles in my feet, gradually spread. Eight hours later, I walked out. Next no. week, went down to Cossel Ski Slope. And I just looked down and people were asking me how I was. And I just looked down. I thought, I've got to do this. I normally just had a run down, like a warm-up run. But this time I thought, no, I'm going to concentrate 100%. Went straight for the kicker, went off the kicker, landed, rode away. Right, that's it. Bang. I'm back on it again. <laughs> Loving every minute of it. But at the time, I was also windsurfing, doing a lot right. of windsurfing. And the thing that that did me it's just about this passion for sports i was windsurfing inland uk coastal uk mediterranean canaries and i went to barbados i windsurfed in barbados for 18 days the apartment was right on the beach it nice. was it was forced five to six cross on constant winds every day and the sea was the same temperature as the air it was amazing <laughs> right and then i came back and a week or so after I came back, I went windsurfing to Rutland water. Yeah. And it was gusty, horrible wind, brown water, and 15 minutes to struggle into a five mil steamer wetsuit. And I thought, <laughs> hmm, not so sure about this anymore. I can relate to that. I've literally just come out of the sea before coming on this Zoom. Oh, right. It's fucking nice and cold crazy. on the south coast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's the coldest <laughs> day so far this winter. But I did I did sail in the Canaries for a few years after that. But yeah. I've always thought, if that passion goes, forget it. Forget yeah. it, right? And I've called windsurfing a non-accessible sport. For the reason is, when you're first learning, you need a force two, maybe three, you know. Then yeah. there's a thing called the force four barrier. 
over that there's more power in the sail than your body weight so you need more advanced techniques yeah of course how often do you get the right conditions for your ability i loved a force five to six i could go months without a force five to six anywhere you yeah. know on the coast inland or anything so snowboarding to me was i can go tonight i can go tomorrow night and go the day after absolutely no problem yeah, I mean that's that seems to be one of the sort of things everyone that I've talked to who used to ride dry slope is is the fact that it's consistent. You can just do laps and laps. It's always there. In fact, if it's raining, it's possibly a bit better. Oh god. You know, and just it's always there and you can do as much of it as you want. Well, I've got a great one we made up at SWAD. We called it the shit run, right? <laughs> <laughs> what you do is if it's chucking it down a rain like you yeah. say it flies now swads 120 meters long it goes down levels out a little runoff area yeah. then a, a long grass bank up to a metal uh, metal toboggan run shoot right right if they hadn't cut the grass and it was raining heavily you could straight line it all the way down ride all the way up the grass bank and jump over the toboggan run the only, <laughs> that's sweet the only problem was is if they had cut the grass and you didn't notice, you'd ride all the way down across the bottom, up the bank, hit the grass bit and stop dead and you just end up in a pile of mud. <laughs> but we, we also made up loads of stupid grabs, stupid names, cough and drop, slut air, ponce air, you know, because we'd got nothing to copy. We didn't know what we were doing, basically. But yeah. it was just such good fun. You just got more and more and more people getting interested in it. And unfortunately, the Cossel Slope eventually closed. Yeah. And then at the time, at Ultrasport, we were bringing in, oh, God, what did you start with? Sims, uh, yeah. Blacks and uh, Generics, um, Elfkin Bindings, OK Boots. Did you ever see the OK Boots? They looked like, they were like, they look like some terrible. sort of elvish kind of they were felt thing. Oh, they were horrible, horrible <laughs> boots. And uh, and then eventually, what, what else did we bring in? Uh, nitro, we took Nitro Palmer, and then Rosignol skis and snowboards. Yeah. All right? Now, Jeremy, he had a hard job because we'd got windsurf customers and we'd got ski customers eventually. Yeah. And a lot of them were not interested in taking in snowboarding. Very, very few embraced it. But, you know, Jeremy, he just got stuck into it and got on with it. You know, you've got people, some of the first people to embrace it were like Ian Gregorelli at was Grand Prix then. Brian oh, Grand Prix, yeah. Yeah, Brian Stark at Mac Enterprises, as it was yeah. in Edinburgh. Yeah. Those two then joined together and became Boardwise. Yeah, that was later but, on, wasn't it? Yeah. So some of those people were embracing it right from the start. And... Uh, and Jeremy eventually left and he became the head honcho at um, Snowboard Asylum. He certainly did. He certainly <laughs> did. But I think we're jumping ahead. So were you sort of, so you were doing it obviously that when Snowboard UK sort of hit the shelves? Yeah, I mean, we didn't even buy magazines. So right. we didn't even know. If somebody brought a snowboard magazine, you go, where the hell did you get that from? You know, because we didn't know. So we you weren't even really aware that there no, was kind no, of that infrastructure not already not at all not at all and it's only years later when i look back at the magazines thinking well i didn't know he was doing that then yeah you know and uh so I, i'm just trying to go through all these different dry slopes that we hit and and some were fantastic some were some were rubbish but um so jeremy sladen left and uh, and i thought hang on a second i've got all these contacts and all this knowledge why don't i leave and do it for myself right so i left I got an A4 blank pad and sat looking at it for a day thinking, what the hell do I do? 
how do you start a business? Do I go to the bank? Do I look for premises? Do I contact suppliers? And eventually I just started making notes and off I went. I started Lifestyle Board Zone. What um, year was that? Uh, oh, God, 90, 99, uh, 99, I think it was. Right, okay. 98, 99. Yeah, so I mean like the... Sort of, it was all in full swing by then, wasn't it, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, because we were, uh, Jeremy built the market up pretty well. And so that we were getting more and more and more snowboard customers. And a lot of them were, were quite unusual. They were mountain bike shops were, were taking it on. You've got really? state shops taking it on. Yeah. You know, but in the early days, boards were so, so different because... Some of the manufacturers at the time were just effectively copying like ski construction. Yep. So some of the early boards didn't have inserts. They had aluminium top sheets. No, so, my, bro- my brother on his episode, he was talking about his first Rosignol board that had to yeah. be T-bolted. It, you had to get And he said, he said basically it was just like a big ski. Yeah, it is. That's what it was. And uh, so you had to get these templates at the binding box and you had to measure them a hundred times before you start drilling them, <laughs> and you drill them and put self-tapping screws in. Yeah. Great. No, no, they all ripped out, all ripped out. And so eventually, there's things called top hat sections appeared. Now these were stainless steel round T shapes that you cut a hole in the PTEX underneath, yeah. drilled all the way through, pushed it through, and resined it in from underneath. Yeah. So that it, it couldn't possibly pull through. And then as more manufacturers appeared, you're getting every hole pattern possible. It was ridiculous. I've got a nitro board from those times in the garage at the moment, and you can either have it regular or goofy, and the stance width sticks, that's it. You can't change it. There's just four holes that way, four holes that way, and that's it. But then each manufacturer were coming along, and they were all having their own patterns. So there was loads and loads of different patterns coming along. Eventually, it started focusing on the 4 by 4 Well, I think Burton cracked it with the three-hole disc, yeah. didn't well, they? And then everyone else thought, philosophy. oh, we can do that with four. The brilliant philosophy there was Burton stated that what do uh, inserts give a board? They give it cost and they give it weight. Yeah. And it's of no advantage. So they worked out the 3D system, which they looked at putting the least amount of inserts in possible to get the maximum amount of adjustability. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you think about it from the time, I mean, that is a that is a genius that's, invention, that's isn't it? That brilliant. changed the game for everyone. But then you got some of their limited edition boards. You started getting a single row of inserts. Yeah. And that, that was the predecessor to their now brilliant channel system and uh and lots of people criticized it said the board doesn't flex and all this but when you start getting into it technically like i did i went right deep into everything right they've got different channels depending on the flex of the board so the channel flexed exactly the same as the flex of the board okay but that's um, proper that's proper geek levels oh, <laughs> oh well do you know can i remember when burton came out with the locking flad where your high back used to lock into place. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the locking flat, right? Yeah. Loads of them were getting broken, and yeah. they couldn't figure out why. They they tried. They're looking at the materials now. And then one day, excuse me, one day one of the engineers was in Burton, and a couple of the pros came in, and they were bringing broken bindings in. And just by chance, the engineer said, "Hang on a second, you've broken your right one. You've broken your left one. Yeah, I always break my right one. Yeah, I always break my left one." Are you regular and you goofy? Yeah, that's your back binding and that's your back binding. They both went, yeah, 
And he went, hang on a second. And he realized that having the flag locked in place, the high back locked in place like that, yep. people weren't taking care when getting on chairlifts and the chairs were ramming into the back of them I and see. cracking the high backs. You see what I mean? Yeah. So that's why they took a brilliant system. It was a superb idea. But unfortunately, it's put in the hands of the general public, which are br <laughs> brilliant people at testing things to destruction. Well, that's your best your best audience for breaking stuff, isn't it? Oh, one of the best Burton ones ever was when girls started getting into snowboarding. Girls had been complaining about calf ache, right? And lads yeah. being lads are going, oh, shut up, get on with it. We all get aching legs. And then Burton heard more and more about this. And, uh, and they thought, I wonder if there is something in this. And it's something I used to teach years later. And so they started looking and they, get, they sent engineers out and they measured literally hundreds of girls' legs. They yeah. went to colleges and universities and measured all the parameters of girls' legs. And they came up with a conclusion. You get any female to stand up and push her knees backwards and her legs bend backwards slightly. Men's right. don't. And right. you look at the percentage of the calf muscle Yep. Even for the same height, girls' calf muscles are slightly lower. Yeah. Right? And so they were having calf problems. So Burton then developed what's called the plush cuff. And so it was a bit – you don't just scale down in size. You scale down in size for the smaller foot, yeah. and you lower the back and make it a softer lower back yeah, so yeah. that it was more friendly for, for girls. It's crazy, so, isn't it, to think that there was a time when <laughs> sort of this stuff hadn't been thought about given that it's kind of just so second nature now. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, it's changed dramatically. I mean, snowboarding went through. Initially, it was all people trying different designs and stuff, not really knowing, just trying to transpose ski technology over to snowboards. Then it went through an explosion of, of the world and his mother wanted to make snowboards. You could go to the Elan factory, and I yeah. think the, minim, the minimum run was 200. I yeah. want one with frogs on, you know, or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, anybody could have them. And then it got worse than that, and you're getting all sorts of construction snowboards. Everybody was trying to do stuff on the cheap. But luckily today, it's brilliant. I don't think you could possibly find one piece of crap, crap kit on the market, you know, all no. the manufacturers come out with really good quality stuff. And yeah. uh, and so people are so, so looking. It's halcyon times, isn't it? But oh, let's God. let's let's go back to um when you opened the shop. Yeah. Well, I opened the shop. I, I got a kit from can remember and I can't remember the chap's name, Lesprit de Keep. Oh yeah. In London. Keep. Ben White. It? Yeah, that's it. His, his name wasn't Ben White, was it? Because it was Dutch. It was Benjamin de White Groot or something like that. <laughs> I don't know yeah. that. I'm sure yeah, not some... many people know that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and they had their they had their head place in uh, London. And it yeah, was an in uh, what turned out well, what eventually became um, Fabric, the nightclub. Yeah, that's right. But it was an old fire station, and their doorbell was a gigantic cast iron doorbell. <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't. It was the fire bell. Frightened you to death when you bloody rang it. It's funny because well, I remember we went up there because I had to take. Just mentioning my brother again, like we had yeah. to take one of his boards back and they said, I'll bring it up to the warehouse. So we took it up there and it was like desolate around there. It was in Clerkenwell. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But but funnily enough, a few years later, I ended up living just around the corner and it's all, you know, completely changed. And it's yeah. now, you know, there's all restaurants and stuff. It's crazy. Well, what they used to do, because it was, they get stuck in the London traffic, right? They'd got different floors, they got office or warehouse. And then the top floor was open and they built a skate ramp in there. 
so that the end of a working day, if people wanted to wait so that they didn't catch the traffic, they'd yeah. go skating up there and they've got a television screen and watch videos yeah. and stuff. I think those guys are pretty loose. I've heard some tales that I, can't, I don't think I can probably talk oh, know, about, about some of their parties. I've, I've been having to watch what I put down here. <laughs> don't worry. Fair play to and, him as well. Uh, yeah, so I got my first kick from them. Then there was Alex Badley who ran Abbasot Water Sports. Now, okay. he used to close over the winter period because it, it was dead there. Yep. So just before I opened, I went down and I took loads of his clothing stock and then eventually built up. And then I wrote to Burton and it was uh, Simon, the late Simon Richardson, of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I wrote to him. He invited me down London. I went through everything and they agreed to supply me, even though at the time, <coughs> God, I've got frog in my throat. Even at the time, I was only doing a few snowboards a year. Yeah. But he believed in me. Oh, and you should have seen. He once showed me a graph years later of my turnover with Burton, how it increased dramatically. He said, it's a stupid graph. If you'd have drawn this in a class at college saying this is how business goes, they yeah. wouldn't have believed you. And, <laughs> and it, it, it was absolutely fantastic. But I think back then, though, I mean, I've heard... I don't know this firsthand, but I've certainly heard that I think Burton were fairly aggressive in... Oh, you know, very if, you, if you took X amount one year, you had to, had to sort of like increase it by a certain percentage for the next year. It, it, it depends. And, and it's a horrible thing to say. It depends on the people. Right. If you worked with them, they yeah. would work with you. If you yeah. went in demanding, they wouldn't. Right, you know, okay. it was a completely different way of working. And I mean, the lovely Lizzie nowadays and Dan, yeah. they're superb as well. Yeah. You know, in fact, I went to the Birmingham Snow Show, you know, a few months ago and uh, and saw Lizzie. I've seen her for about 10 years. No, well, she's um, we're hoping to have her on soon. Oh, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to chatting to her about all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And But at the time, it's quite interesting because... I re like I said, I really delve into things technically and yeah. I was studying and looking into it. So much so, I created in the shop, I created presentations so that right. somebody come in wanting a snowboard, I'd say, I can do two things. I can just go through a few bit with you now and you can buy the board or please give me the time, come one night after I close the shop and I'll go through a full presentation and all the technicalities of it and it'll take about two hours, right? <laughs> But then bring a notepad and yep. don't be frightened to ask questions because I will go through a lot. And people used to be a bit, oh, I don't know, I don't think I need to know all of that. And yeah. the analogy I used to use is a car. You wouldn't go into a garage and say, could I have a car, please? Yes, sir, which one do you want? I want the blue one. Yeah. Well, you want petrol or diesel? Not bothered. What engine do you want? Not bothered. What are you going to do with it? Don't know, really. You know, and that's the analogy I used to use. If you want to know, I want to give you as much information as possible yeah. for you to make the right decision for you. Yeah. Because I, people used to come in and say, oh, I want to snowboard. And I used to say, what for? And they go, snowboard, you idiot. Yeah, but what do you want to do with it? Are you going to ride dry slope every week, once a year on snow? You're going to do a season on snow? You're going to be the fastest on the mountain beating all your mates? You're going to spend all day in the park? Yeah. You know, because all of these factors have to be taken into account. And some of my presentations, I used to go through the con from phone call, rim construction, vertical wood, laminate, exotics, the difference and advantages, disadvantages of extruded and sintered bases. I used to delve all the side cut radii. I used to delve right into it. I even used to tr uh, teach people how trees work so that they could understand, and, and transpiration, how trees feed themselves, so that they can understand how the grain works in vertical wood laminates. 
You know, wow. and if people were interested in all this stuff, they were fascinated rather than just coming in and buying the board. You see what I mean? Yeah, well, I guess customers. it's yeah. Well, I guess that breeds loyalty, doesn't it? Like if you spend more time with a customer, oh, God, yeah. oh, you know, but, and you treat them, you treat them intelligently then they're obviously going to respond. And I guess they, you must have had lots of customers that were just like, well, you know, I kind of know what I want or I don't really know what I want. But well, I think the I worst want ones... And you kind of have to... Were you were you okay in entertaining those people? Oh, it, the worst customers ever are a lad coming in the shop, I, I want that snowboard. Okay, then, why do you want that one? My mate said it's a good board. Yeah. Oh, all right, then. How long did you make in snowboarding? He's on his third lesson now. You know, you can't talk to people. like They will not listen. No. So I, I, I used to turn people away, believe it or not. I said, I'm not going to let you have that because I don't think it's suitable for you. Right. And I've got a brilliant example. Not going to name the shop. There was a big shop in Nottingham, big store. We've got several yeah. throughout the country. One day, a lad and his girlfriend came in my shop on Saturday afternoon. And, I, and he was looking at the snowboards. And I said, hello, can I help you? You're all right. And, uh, and the girl said, oh, no, he's just bought his boards, boots and bindings and that from uh, Nottingham. Yeah. It not, it's, it's not nonstop. He no. was good now. And, uh, and this other store. And uh, and I said, oh, right, uh, what have you got? And he said, a Burton bullet. And I looked at this lad. He was only about five foot. And I said, <laughs> but that's a wide board. What size feet have you got? He said, eight. I said, that's a wide board. That's for size 11 or over feet. You know, yeah. I could even get tens on standard boards, depending yeah. on how you position them. And uh, and I said, that's totally unsuitable. And he said, oh, but I got it because it's it's got a sintered base. I said, it hasn't. It's an extruded base. You know, it's it's complete fabrication. And the girl immediately got angry. Right, that's it. I said, if you're taking it back, here's my number. Get the manager to phone me yeah. because somebody is bullshitting somewhere. Yeah. So they disappeared off. They come back in the shop about three hours later. They've taken everything back, right? right? The manager argued with them. And <clears throat> he admitted in the end that, yes, it's a wide board. You shouldn't have had it. Uh, it's not a sintered base. Nobody will have told you that. And the lad looked around the room and went, he did. He's the lad over there that sold it to no me. Way. Come over here. Yeah. Did you tell this customer it's a sintered base? And he went, yeah. He said, why did you do that? His answer was, it more or less is, isn't it? You know, and that's the kind of people you're dealing with. And I later found out a lad who works at the shop on Saturdays told me about that incident. And he said they'd had that board for a couple of years and anyone was going to be given a 50 quid bonus if they could get rid of it. Right. That's the kind of shops you were dealing with. Well, Look it was a bit of a gold rush at the time, though, wasn't it? it was... Exactly. That's brilliant, brilliant expression. Yeah. And, uh, and and it grew and grew and grew, and then everybody was jumping on the bandwagon. And then, uh, I mean, I got hit by the recession, unfortunately. I was going it for 17 years. Yeah. And then my best year ever was followed by my worst year ever. Oh, no. I, I just stood there one day. I can remember it's one Wednesday afternoon. I was looking, I was on a marketplace looking out. Apart from buses, nobody was going past. It was on television all about the recession and everything. Yeah. And I phoned Pat, my partner, Patricia, my partner, and I said, this is bigger than me. I've been looking at it on the news. I'm going to close. And she well, you can't. So I phoned Burton. They wanted to help me. They said, we'll help you all the way through whatever you want. I said, no, this is too big. And so I closed the shop. And in the end, I owed nothing to anybody. I paid absolutely everything. 
unlike lots of shops who went under at the time, they yeah. nearly took down some of the some of the importers and distributors. Yeah. You know, and uh, and that's the sort of way I ran the business. That's how I think you should run a business. Yeah. I know Dale at thirty two. He yeah. went to one shop one day, who owed him loads of money, turned up there. The shop was empty. The bloke not answering his mobile phone. They never found him. Wow. You know, he just buggered off. And uh, But, you know, at the time when I was having the shop, I, like I say, I used to do these presentations. I also started organising trips. We used to ride on a regular basis. When Castle closed, somebody told me that there was a, a ski slope in Nottingham. And I'm like, yeah, it was Castle. They went, no, the other side of Nottingham. Right. And I went, where? And they said, it's Carlton Forum. And I said, where's that? The Richard Herrick Leisure Centre. And I, I've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so I decided, I drove over one night. I pulled up at this leisure centre. I got out, no ski slope. And I looked around, a woman taking the dog for a walk. And I said, is there a ski slope here? She went, oh, yeah, yeah, behind the building. Walk right up the fields and it's at the top end. Wow. So I thought, okay, fair enough. So I'm walking up this field, still couldn't see one. In the distance, you know, around tennis courts, you know, these like 10-foot chain-link fences. Yep. I saw one of them in the distance, and I got closer to it. Hang on a second. There's a mini slope in here inside this fencing, and it's about 40 metres long, if that. <laughs> it was a wooden frame, and it was built what? on top of the changing room. No. <laughs> if, if you're in the changing room and you heard a noise on the roof, it was yeah. people standing on top. There was a rope toe that went halfway that never worked. Yeah. And I thought, this is interesting. So I went down to the, the reception and I asked to see the manager and I said, can I rent this off you? And they said, Oof, don't know what you want to do with it. And I explained about teaching snowboarding, about yeah. you know, having a freestyle night. And they said, but we need to look at it first. Can you come down and, and ride here? And I said, yeah, yeah, great, no problem. We arranged a date. I went down there and they had a delegation of the managers and, and God knows what else was yeah. there from the council. So a couple of us just rode down this slope, walked back up, rode down a few times, and they went, yep, great, no problem, it's yours. And so I used to go down, I used to uh, go into the reception, get the keys, go up there, unlock everything. I did loads of teaching sessions there. We had a freestyle night. I took a, a cheese wedge down there. We had yeah. a hose pipe, which we could hose it down if it was dry. And we yeah. used to call ourselves the Ant Hill Mob because it was so small. <laughs> <laughs> and we even had visions at one time we were talking. If we could have a helicopter fly over and drop us on the top of this tiny slope, wouldn't that make a brilliant video? <laughs> and then you ride down and it's like 40 metres and that's yeah. it. <laughs> but I, I, I was doing that for quite a long time. And, uh, and Robin at nonstop again, he came down with his crew and we're having a brilliant time. But then one day I got a letter from the council saying what we're doing is highly commendable, but it's too little too late because of the cost of the public liability insurance, yeah. because of the cost of the electricity, the lights, it had spotlights, they had to go off at, at 10 o'clock at night. They had complaints from nearby houses because of the spotlights, because yeah. of the, the running costs of the water and everything. And they'd only ever used it for a few toboggan runs for kids. And they'd got two or three people claiming against them because kids had hurt themselves. So yeah. they said, sorry, we're going to close down. That's it. When was so this? That's like, What sort of time was this? Was this after the shop shut? Uh, no, well, no, no. It's when that I was, was at the shop time right. during the during the time at the shop. But then somebody told us about Sheffield, and uh, what a place that was. And yeah. so we started going up there. And of course, they've got the half pipe, the, yep. the rail, the kicker, the quarter pipe. 
we loved it. What a place Sheffield was, though. It was at arse end of an industrial estate. You go up the slope to it. They've got a yeah. little lower car park, upper car park. At the back of it, there's all these dirt ground where lads used to rag motocross motorbikes around yeah, yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time. I mean, you know about the riot up there that time that the snowboard I'm, I'm well aware of the riot I was <laughs> I was in the middle of the riot and we yeah. might come we'll we'll, we'll we'll branch out onto that separately because I think I'm putting together a special about the riot right brilliant but one time there was an event on and the car parks were full so people were parked all the way down the road approach to it yeah and lads were coming over with motocross bikes across all the dirt ground smashing the windows to cars nicking stuff out of them and they're mm. roaring off back up over the top so they couldn't be followed <laughs> and uh Oh, and Sheffield. In summer, you'd get kids throwing stones at you as you're riding down. I'd get to the top of the slope and there'd be a car full on fire. One night, mid midnight, dark, we're just loading stuff in the car. One of my mates said, look at him over there. It's midnight, it's dark. There's a chap standing waist deep in the bushes with his hands on his hips just staring at us. We went up in the evening. Another time we were there loading the car late at night and it's the upper car park was all gravel. A car came roaring in, spinning round and round, spraying gravel everywhere. And yeah. it went full speed straight into a grass bank, smashed a bit. <laughs> Doors open, four lads ran out laughing and off they went and the engine was still running. You know, it obviously, oh obviously nicked it. And uh, But I had an interesting nightmare. It was like you say, when it's raining, it was chucking it down a rain. I'd had a bit of a, a bubbly tum all day. And so it was getting near 10 o'clock when the, the lift stops. And I front flipped the big kicker, Nolly front flipped it. And as I landed, I shit myself. And I'm, and I'm like, oh, right. And don't forget, I'm already absolutely soaked to the skin. If I get to the bottom, my mate comes down. I told him, we both laughed. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, wait, it's a minute to 10. The, it's going to close at 10. I'm going to have another run. So it, it was interesting putting that T-bar between my legs that night, I'll tell you. Oh my God. <laughs> so I had another run. And, of course, a lot of them had packed up by then. They were in the changing area. And uh, and I went in and they were all staring at me. And I just smiled and said, I'm just going to go into the disabled cubicle and, uh, and sort myself out. I'll see you in the bar after. But Sheffield had a camera system and it was a right. one-hour delay. And so you could rag yourself around for the last hour, go in, get changed, get a beer, and, and sit and watch yourself. But when you came out of there at night, of course, you were coming out late at night. It was a one-way system. You went through this back of this industrial area. Yeah. It was red light district. You did not have to guess. There were prostitutes on every single corner, trust yeah. me. And yeah. one night, one of my mates just pointed over. I was just stopped at traffic lights. He went, look over there. That's not something you see every day. And I looked over and... I mean, you had to laugh. It was a dwarf dressed as Elvis, the full works, right? He looked superb trying to reach to put his key in a door to, to go in one of these Perry's houses. So uh, Sheffield was always fun. And, and it's, it's a pity that's gone as well now. Yeah, yeah. I've I've got some eventful memories of Sheffield that we don't need to go into. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, so... So just sort of sum up your experience of, of running a shop. I know I said at the top that... Seven days um, a week, loved every minute, you know. Yeah, because yeah. I was saying at the top that you, everybody, like you were really kind enough to recommend like our place as a good place to go and stay. Yeah. And everybody that came, I mean, I still know um, a couple of them quite well. 
they just like they became friends and everyone everyone was like oggy is a legend like well, i used to give it my all because i had and have still got the passion yeah you know like i said the passion for windsurfing went and that was it yeah. you know I, I still in fact i'm going to the alps on saturday where are you, you going know, up to uh, Les Arcs, nineteen fifty, the posh. Bit. Oh man, my old, my old stomping. You know what? You know what? Every single time, for years, when the coach is pulling into Borg, and yeah. I look to the right, and there's the railway station. Yeah. I always look up the road on the left for the blue building, which is no longer blue, unfortunately. It, I know it's not blue anymore. And I is will it? be doing that Saturday afternoon. I'll be looking up at the building. Oh man, go and give, go and go and give our old house some love. That's yeah. amazing. In fact, it's, it was really bad weather a few years ago in, in Les Arcs, and so I caught the Teleferite down. Yeah. And I walked down the Le Grand Rue. Yep. That paved street all the way. Yeah. A superb street, that is. I know, it's beautiful, isn't it? But it shocked me. All the shops were closed. It was like a Tuesday, I think it was. You probably got it at lunchtime. Lunchtime, They, they yeah. love a bit of... <laughs> they You're love being shut at lunchtimes, don't it was, they? It was completely dead. I know. You know and that, that shocked me, that thing. But of course, at the shop as well, you know, giving it your all. I organised trips to the mountains. Yeah. You know, the biggest group I ever took was about sixty people. Never again. Never again. No, how that's a make, lot of work. How to make grown men turn into mardy schoolboys in one go? Oh, they'd be <laughs> knocking on your door. Our cooker doesn't work. Go and tell reception. Well, they're foreign, can't you tell them? You yeah. know. And, oh God, I had all of that, and people arguing who they shared with, and all this business. So what I do now is. I just book and go. That's it. Yeah. And then people ask me when and where I'm going, and I tell them, and they come, and it's up to them, you know, to sort themselves out. But I think it's such a thing, though, doing that, like organising trips, I you know, getting people down the dry slope. I mean, it's a lot of work, but it seems that you were just – that was everything you were about. You were about snowboarding and sharing it with people, and so, of course, you did all these things. But, I mean, in, in it's 10 years since I closed the shop. Yeah. I've got firemen turn up here <laughs> because I did my presentation to a fireman who was quite young at the time, and now he's training new firemen and he's getting them into snowboarding, and yeah. they still come to my house for my presentation, and I go through explaining. No way. To them. Yeah, and I do. I, I did a, a presentation thing, not just on snowboard construction and, and design and uh, mountain safety, but I also I formulated a newbie one. If people were going for the first time to the mountains, yep. right, I'd go through everything that they need to do and everything they don't need to do. Yeah. Because people have got some really weird ideas what you know what they should be looking for and what they should do. Well, um, I think that now with with I was talking with Shannon from the Snowboard Asylum yesterday about yeah. this, because he's sort of like, you know, comp- he's got a list of all the sort of independent shops in the UK. Yeah. And you only need to look at an old copy of White Lines or Snowboard UK and see how many there were oh, God, compared yeah. to how many there is now. And that's obviously there's various reasons for that. But all the anecdotal, you know, the problem with everything being online is that all the anecdotal stuff, as you say, like what you need and what you don't need. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, you don't buy your boots too small and they'll stretch out. Do you know what I mean? There's all these myths and things that circulate around that people getting into the sport don't don't know what the truth is yeah and when you're not meeting someone in a shop that has that lived experience of you know seasons and i've I've been doing this for 30 years all that sort of stuff is lost and that's amazing that you're still 
but sort of do, think... speaking to people about that and trying to set people off on the right path because that will only then make them snowboard more in the future. Well, I used to hate when uh, a mail order was starting to kick in and people were asking to mail order boots. Now, I always used to say there's only one way to buy boots and that's yeah. to go without your wallet. You can't buy them, right? That will not put you in a position where you think, oh, these are not too bad. I think I'll have these. You, you can't be pressured into it. You know, you could even pressure yourself into buying something that you later find not suitable because yeah. you try loads of different ones on different brands. They all fit differently. And I always used to say to people, when you do buy a pair of boots, if they're heat molded or not, wear them for at least an hour a day for two weeks before you even consider riding in them. And I used to give them a measurement when you've got lace up boots before we had boa systems, the two bits that wrapped around in front of the tongue, when you first put them on, measure that distance. When yeah. they've bedded down, that'll be at least one to two centimetres closer because it's not just the liners that bed down. The shells give a hell of a lot as well. Yeah. And one of my first mail orders, I sent some boots to a girl. And I, I told her I didn't like doing it to Scotland. And uh, she phoned up next day. She said, oh, they don't fit. You know, they're, they're a bit too tight and all this. And I said, just do me a favour. Wear them every day for two hours. Watch Coronation Street in them, which I'll get to later. There's funny Coronation Street. Um <laughs> And uh, and just because when your feet are working or, well, muscles, when they're working or they're warm, they expand. Yeah. So I sit watching television in them. That helps bed them down as well as walking up and down in them. And she said, funny you should say that. I've got to work from home for a couple of weeks. But about three days later, she phoned me up. She said, I've worn them every single day. I can't believe on how they've changed and how perfect they now are. Yeah. You know? And that's what you need to do with boots. Boots are the most important piece of kit. Right. Well, funnily, funnily enough, I had this experience yesterday. Yeah. So I went, I was up at the TSA in Covent Garden because I pulled my, I haven't been riding, like regular listeners will know, I haven't been riding for quite some time. And I pulled my kit out of my loft and my boots were looking in a very sorry state and they must have been 10 years old at least. And um, so Shannon was like, come up and we'll, we'll sort you out a pair, which is really, you know, a great fortunate situation to be in. But I sort of went up there with the, I'll get the cheapest... I'll only really look at the cheapest ones. I'll look at a pair of like Vans, high standards or whatever. And yeah. he was like, well, look, try a few different ones on. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to stick with the Vans, I think. And he bought out a pair of Burtons. And I remember having a pair of Burtons years ago. And I did that thing of buying them a size too small. Yeah. Because I thought, all oh, right, then they'll pack out and everything. But these had like the sort of EVA sort of liners. So yeah. in the end, I ended up, you know, taking a scalpel to the toe box no, and cutting those shaving loads holiday, off yeah. and everything. But I used yeah. to nearly scream with pain when I took them off. So basically, I sort of like looked at these Burton boots and was like, yeah, I'm I'm anti these already. Like yeah, I've already yeah. got yeah. this in my mind and I'm, I am sort of judging everything by how much it costs. Yeah. But as it turns out, these Burton boots... Out of everything, I tried to sort of then go, right, let's not do that. Let's try and find the boots that are going to be the most comfortable because these are yeah. going to be the ones that I wear on my 49. You know, these are going to be the ones that I probably wear for the rest of my snowboarding days, potentially. <laughs> you have not done yet. You're a whippersnapper. Well, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, these are going to last me a long time. And my snowboarding, you know, I don't get to go very often now. So really I can't yeah. be doing my foot pain. So I was like, yeah. right, let's just go for what, without looking at them or anything, let's just make the judgment on what is the most comfortable. And they were the Burton ones. 
And, and I would have never chosen them if if I if I'd have been mail, like mail ordering or whatever, yeah, mail yeah. ordering, buying them on the internet, yeah, I would have yeah. never <laughs> chosen them. And I'm really happy that I kind of managed to disassociate myself from all those things and just think, right, what is it? What are the ones for me today? But the one thing I used to say to people in the shop all the time is, have you ever stood on a mountain and looked over at another snowboarder and gone, poof, those boots are horrible, mate? You know. You've got your pants on. You've got your bindings on. People, yeah. nobody does it. Nobody's interested whatsoever in your boots. So surely the most important thing should be fit, rather than what they look like. Hundred percent. You know, hundred so, percent. You know, because one of the big things I've got now is you're in a lift queue. I use the Burton step-ons. Absolutely love them. Right. Yeah. The number of skiers of all nationalities ask me to demonstrate it, and they ask me all about them. Right. You know, because they're just blown away by them. Yeah, I'm still surprised that I mean I mean we are going back a few years, probably like ten years. I remember being on the mountain in Les Arcs and I pulled up to a lift and uh, there was there was a family and it was a British family. And the mum said to her kids, Oh, oh, watch out for those snowboarders, they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. And I thought, I could let this go, but I'm a I'm a grown up, you know, yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah, like yeah, thirty five yeah. or something. Yeah. And I said, you know, really, I was like Actually, I've done more days on a snowboard. Yeah, exactly. Probably this season than you've ever done on your skis. Um, I don't think you should tell your children that snowboarders are out of control. Yeah, some snowboarders might be out of control in the same way that some skiers are out of control, but you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't generalize all about us on the mountain because what's the point? And I take offense to that, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. The problem is nobody teaches rules of the hill. You know, I see snowboards, which I have a go at. They'll sit down just over the brow of the hill and they'll sit yeah. five across. You know, idiots, get out of the bloody way. You know, it nobody used to be called the skiway code, didn't it? That's it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, and it's the only sport I know where you've got from absolute beginner to total pro on the same playing field. Yeah. I can't think of any other sport where you ever get that. And, no, it's uh, quite crazy, isn't it? But one time somebody arranged a trip to uh, Morzine and uh, we got there, the coach arrived, they all started getting out. They thought it was funny that three of us didn't know, right? They were staying in Shelly Bonbon, right on the main drag in Morzine, bottom of the slope, above a bakery, beautiful place. Yeah. But it wasn't enough room for all of us. Three yeah. of us, a lad named Mike who was a skier, Patricia and me, we had to stay on the coach and go all the way around across the river right to the other side, yeah. right? And it was a chalet for 40-odd people, right? Mm. And so we thought, oh, that was a bit of a pisser. But, okay, we went there. We checked in, took our bags to our rooms, and they said that uh, if you're here at 7 o'clock, you know, there's free drinks in the uh, dining room. So, okay, fair Sweet. enough. So we had a wander around, went back at 7 o'clock, walked in the dining room. What the – I looked around, all the men – we're in dinner jackets and all no. the women were in evening dresses. <laughs> it's the only time I've ever Amazing. seen it before. I and I just stood there looking around. And this Mike's a skier, patting me snowboarders, scruffy herberts. What the <laughs> bloody hell? But it turned out great. I got on great with all of them. Yeah. We all had a good laugh. But I got on really well with this Irish granny 
who'd gone out there with her daughter, husband, and their newborn baby, so she'd look after the baby during the day. Oh, right? So I got on great with her, I had a good laugh. A few yeah. days later, imagine there's 40 people around these trestle tables to make like a quadrangle thing. Yeah. So it's quite big. And I was sitting at one corner, and the granny was sitting diagonally opposite at the far corner. Right. Right? I was sitting there just before the meal. And I can't do accents, but she went, Alan. And I went, yeah, yeah. Alan. I went, yeah, sure. Do you want to see my clitoris? And I'm like, what? She said, do you want to see my clitoris? And I, I just looked at Pat, looked at Mike, and I went, I'm game if you are. <laughs> she walked all the way around the table. I turned around. She stood behind me, started pulling a skirt up, what? put one leg out, and started tapping it from side to side. And I'm like, uh, right, what's going on here? And then I clicked on. She'd bought some new tights, and it got glitter in them. They were her glitterers. <laughs> and I tell you what, from silence in the room, you could feel everybody's relief. Yeah, <laughs> that <way> mine. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus. One lad, you know, in more in uh, Avorias, you know, go up the main drag. Yeah. There's a shop at the very top on the left. And one lad, Mookie, went in one day and he just happened to say out loud, looking at all the kit, which was brilliant. And he said, blimey, you've got some right Bobby Dazzlers in here. And the French <laughs> chap went, oh, pardon, what's it, Bobby Dazzlers? What, what have I got? And Mookie explained it. It's good stuff. You know, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. oh, absolutely brilliant. Two girls come in the shop afterwards. The French chap went over to, come in, ladies, come in. Ladies. I have all the Bobby Dazzlers here. I have lots of Bobby Dazzlers. And I often walk past that shop thinking, I wonder if he's still in there saying it. <laughs> you know, they had the O'Neill Freestyle Classic. This, this, this brings you on to people in competition. The O'Neill Freestyle Classic was in the main drag there. Yeah. It's not very steep. No, so they banked the snow up to one of the buildings and the lads in the comp would come out a, a skylight roof yeah. down this drop-in to hit the, the features going down the main slope. Nice. And uh, and that was superb, you know, something from nothing. But those lads would be in the bar with the after having a beer. Yeah. Not like nowadays, lads in competitions, they're professional athletes and yeah. they have to whisk off to the next comp or whatever. But the worst experience that a comp I ever had was uh, in uh, team at the X Games. We had the oh, yeah. worst apartment, the tiniest apartment. It was ludicrous. But I looked out over the half pipe. Yeah. And uh, so at night we watched the pipe competition, which I'm amazed they ran. It was so windy and chucking it down the snow. And it was when uh, iPod, Iri Podlagikov, did the first uh, YOLO flip, 1440, oh, uh, yeah. triple cork. Landed it, took his helmet off, threw it, took his board off, threw it into the crowd, and I got a photograph of that. I've got his board in the air. Sweet. But the next day, the next day, they built the big air comp down parallel to a piste. Then mm -hmm. there was a piste, and then there was a big bank at the side. And when the competition was kicking off, the bank was absolutely full of people. Yeah. And as the day went on, they got more and more drunk, yep. and then people started throwing beer bottles at people skiing and snowboarding past. Jesus. It got totally, utterly out of hand, so much so they had to close the slope. There was broken glass in it, bottles everywhere. Oh, and wow. that night, the police were everywhere. People were being arrested. There were fights. And I'm just standing there looking around thinking, all of you lot are so privileged to even be here. Yeah. let alone causing trouble. You're probably all skiers or snowboarders or whatever, and you're doing this to ruin it for everybody else. And yeah. luckily, I've not seen anything like that since. 
No, I think that must have been a, a that, that's a rarity, isn't it? Oh God, yeah. But I mean, the X Games were superb. I mean, it was free. You could go in yeah. for free. Yeah. You know what do people want? And uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> you know. I, I look at fridges nowadays. We were started off just at the odd dry slope, and people nowadays, you've got fridges everywhere. You could go and ride snow every day of the week. You know. You, you should feel it as a privilege, not a right, that you're able to do this, let alone afford it. But, well, but for, a, for a long time now on planes, in the early days, you'd got planes full of young lads, all excited, boisterous, you know, going out snowboarding, some skiing probably. And uh, But nowadays, it's all grey-haired, middle-aged folks, you know, going out. And I'm just thinking it's a pity because it's obviously an effect of the, the cost of living crisis and yep. the COVID and all of that. But hopefully... It's going to resurge now and people are going to get more interested in it, the more coverage like like you're doing now to get people more interested in it. And, so that uh, brings me around. So what, you know, kind of what does snowboarding mean to you still or now? Like, how's it changed not having to shop anymore and maybe not being so in it anymore? Well, I'm not working seven days a week. That's one thing. Yeah. <laughs> but But no, my passion was still in it then, you know, and it's still in it now. I, I, I'm in the gym four days a week. Yeah. I'm getting on in age now. My uncle, my Swiss uncle, who taught me to ski, he was still skiing at 73, yeah. right? He, he was a bank manager in Zurich. And uh, when he retired, he then was part of their social scene. Yeah. And on the afternoon, he died, age 73. He'd, he'd skied that season. And it was summer. He'd just won a tennis match. He went home, had a shower, sat down in his chair, and that was it. His heart packed up. Wow. And then I thought about another one. We were in Les Arcs and we were coming up the pre-Saint Esprit lift, yep. right? And we were going up and over. And one afternoon they were working on somebody, cardiac massage, mouth to mouth, all of that, mm -hmm. shoving snow up, you know, for the mammalian diving reflex that they try to slow everything down. And, and I thought, that doesn't look good. Over an hour later, I was on the same lift going up. They're still working on him. I thought, oh dear. I went to the rep. That after uh, later that evening, took him to one side and I, I said, look, we saw this. Do you, do you know what happened? And he said, yeah, it was a bloke who was 75 and he'd had a heart attack and died. And, you know, and it's terrible. And then I thought, well, yes, it's terrible that they both died. But it's not really, is it? Because that chap in, in Ark, it was a bluebird day. Beautiful snow condition. It had snowed for three days before. Beautiful yeah. snow conditions. He was skiing with his mates and then the switch was flicked. That's it. Like my uncle, he'd won a tennis match, gone home, dead chuffed with himself, sat down, the switch was flicked. That was it. Rather than sitting just stagnating in an old people's home. And that's my ambition. I've got two ambitions. One is, because I'm 69 now, and one is, uh, and I've got two trips booked this year to the Alps and two for 2025. Brilliant. And Crystal won't let me book for 2026. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm always hassling them. And... Um, but I'm going to beat my uncle. I'm going to be snowboarding when I'm 73, right? And get this. This is brilliant. Les Arcs is one of a few slopes. You get a senior pass. I get 50 quid off the lift pass. 50 quid I'm off. Les Arcs is so tight. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get, Jesus I Christ. I get 50 quid, 50 quid less, right? Because and when you're 75, you get a free lift pass. Boom. That's what I'm aiming That's for. That's your goal, is it? And in fact, we were on the uh, Transarc, bottom of the Transarc, yeah. and I'd just swiped through uh, last year, yeah. and a uh, woman came out of the hut, oh, excuse me, pulled me over, uh, helmet goggles, I had to take everything off, and she went, uh, 
how old are you? And I told her, and she went, ah, oh, oh, okay. Uh, you have seen your past. I didn't believe you were that old. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my claim to fame. Yeah, take that as a win. <laughs> but you've got to be you've got to be fit. I've always said I could ski from the top of the mountain to the bottom with gaffer tape over my mouth. You can't do that on a snowboard. It yeah. is so much more physical. Yeah. But uh, and, and snowboard is it's like a two way thing. The fitter you are, the better your snowboard. And the more and better your snowboard, the fitter you are. 100%. You know, so, and it's, it's just the passion. I just love it. And what I do is I sometimes, I've got a thing that I, I started years ago. If I'm going to do something I think is difficult, like hit some kicker and so I haven't hit before, I even when I've got a helmet on, I use my two forefingers on either hand and I tap the side of my head and I say out loud, focus on, right? right. Because you can't focus for 100% of the time. So I switch it on. And then yeah. when you've done what you're going to do, I tap my head again and say, focus off. Switch it off. And you'll be surprised. It's a little mental trick. You'll be surprised how accurate you can do things then. And the other thing I often do now is if I'm on my own somewhere, off piste or even on piste, it doesn't matter. I just stand there, look around at the blue skies and the snow and the mountains and stuff. And I go, this one's for me. There's no cameras. There's nobody else watching. There's no ego involved. This feeling now is for me and me alone. And I often used to say to people, stop, close your mouth, open your eyes, look at the blue skies, look at the mountains, smell the fresh air. And if you can, imagine you can drink this whole view, this whole experience into your system, because next week you'll be back at work. And if you just spend a moment doing this now, when you're back at work, you'll be able to recall it and you'll be able to be back in this spot again. So <laughs> that's beautiful. I think you've just I think you've just managed to succinctly get to where I was trying to get you. Yeah. I think we've I think Are you manipulated me. <laughs> not really, but I was I was about to ask you, kind of, you know, can you succinctly sum up what snowboarding is for you? And I think that analogy of being in the mountains and keeping your eyes open and your mouth shut and drinking it in. Yeah. I think that's that is that's that's what I'm trying to impart through this podcast yeah. is to get yeah. people to think, fuck, I need some of that in my life. Well, one hundred percent of people who who I've convinced sounds a horrible word, but convinced to go yeah. on winter holidays, whether it's skiing or snowboarding, it doesn't matter. I've convinced to go. They've never done anything like it in their life. I advise them to get lessons first. They go out there because it, it's not cheap trip. They go out there and they come back. 100% of them have said the same two things to me. One is it's so different to what I expected. And two, why didn't I do it years ago? One thing I want to ask is that you've got a lot of guitars behind you. 33. Why have you got so many guitars? Uh, I bought some. I inherited some. I built some myself. Did you? Yeah, we had. Yeah. Show me something that you built. You see it? Wow, flying V. Look at that bad boy. Oh, I've got some, some stuff better than that. Oh, I'm just stuck in there. Right. Back there, I've got a, I've got a, a Marshall JCM 800 amp that belonged to Wurzel, who was in Motorhead, <laughs> and I've got all the paperwork to prove it. I've got a Marshall a JTM 45 amp and cab that were made in 1967. And if I ever want to get rid of it, Marshall said they want first dibs on it for their yeah, museum. Right. 
I've been to the Marshall Museum. I've met them. I've got a book somewhere signed to me by Jim Marshall himself, obviously before he died. I'm not interested in being in a band. I'm not interested in showing off how perfect I can do covers. I love guitar music theory. I've been doing it for years. I love all the diatonic chord harmony, all the scale mode chord construction, uh, the importance of, um, of intervals. You know, if you learn your intervals, the whole fretboard comes together. I love technique, double-handed tapping, you know, uh, pinched harmonics, natural harmonics. And the trouble is, I've got dinky hands, right? And this lot of I. I've got quite short fingers. I'm shit. Yeah, I, have, I, I, have. I mean, I do play the guitar, but I'm, I'm but not that's why I, I hate acoustics. Acoustics are too fat for me. And yeah. that's why I've got my favourite guitar. Go on. It's the Ibanez uh, Nita Strauss Jiva, right? I always wanted one of the Steve Vai ones. Ah, but Nita Strauss, get this, female guitarist, the only female ever to have a, a signature model. Yeah? Really? Yeah. She's female. She's got small hands. Right. These are great. <laughs> that's what Just I need, though. <laughs> but no, that's another passion. I play every day. I play every single day. You know, and and I get my headphones on. I've got all stuff set up, great, great kit and stuff set up. Yeah. And I just love it. And I couldn't care less if anybody listens to me or not. You know, I've put my ego in a parcel and sent it to Santa years ago. You know, not interested. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, is, this is one just reminded me. I'd just come back from the Alps five years ago. Yeah. Uh, I had a great time. We're having building work done to the house. And... Uh, and, of course, it was January, it was frosty outside. I had to move my car off the drive every morning and uh, so the builders could get on. And great, no problem, I got up early. And then one morning I went out and I was scraping the ice off my windscreen and I scraped a little hole and I'm, I live in a cul-de-sac. And then I was dry, just about to drive out and I thought, no, do you know what? Just imagine a police car going past the end of the road stops me from just clearing a little hole. Mm. And I thought, no, sorry, I'll get out and do it properly. And I've got a Nissan Navara. So it's quite high. So I was there leaning over, scraping it, walked around the front of the car to do the other side, slipped on the ice, dropped, slipped sideways onto a concrete block and oh. broke my femur and my pelvis. No way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. So parted off to hospital. Yeah, great. No problem. Thursday afternoon. Uh, operated on Friday. I've got all titanium rods and screws and stuff in my pelvis. Join, join the club. And so, so oh, I've got Dendex thumb as well. Yeah. Let me see <laughs> what, what one club works, one doesn't, you know. And, I've got uh, <laughs> and uh, oh, like the bruises and the carpet burn. And, and yep. you know, I was going to do a printed t shirt once that said, Dendex, who needs thumbs anyway? And, uh, <laughs> and, and anyway, I was in a hospital and came out, and I'd got a trip booked in a few weeks. I've got really good um, insurance. I've got annual insurance covers all windsurfing, on and off piece stuff. Brilliant, right. absolutely brilliant company. And got in touch with them. It was too close to the holiday with Crystal to get a full refund. Within two weeks with the insurance company of Crystal, I'd got a full refund, right? Nice. So I sat there. The district nurse was going to come round and take the stitches out because all my leg was strapped up. And she phoned up and said, come round, I'm going to check for trip hazards. Well, I looked around the room. <laughs> half the wall was missing. And we've got stuff stacked up in boxes. And there was brick dust everywhere and builders running in and out. And yeah. I thought, well, good luck with that one, Doc. And uh, so she came around and she went, oh, oh, right. You've got to be careful. I went, yeah, I know. She said, come on, then. Let's have a look at the wound. Pulled my joggers down. had a look. There was a big tape thing stripped down. And she started peeling it off. And she went, 
oh, blimey. And I went, what? And I looked down. There was a pink line. And she said, you've got no stitches. You've been glued. And I went, oh, mint. Right, okay. And it was black and blue, of course, and yeah. couldn't use it properly. So she disappeared. So I had a look at this wound, and I thought, ah, don't look too bad. As long as I don't pop it open, mm. get on your exercise bike. And it was agony. But I stuck at it, and I kept going and going and going. And, of course, next year comes along. I'd booked a couple of trips. And the first day I put the board on, I thought, hmm. This is going to be interesting. I had no problems with it, no problems yeah. with it at all. And I rode down, done 100 yards, forgot about it, and I forgot about it ever since. Wow. You know, That's just amazing. get on with it. Just Because I'm such a positive thinker. Yeah. You know? And I always believed in, if possible, exercise out of injury. Yep. You know, you yeah, don't yeah, just yeah. I sit there. I 100% agree. Just, I, mean, you, I mean, you've had injuries, haven't you? Yeah, I had a big operation on my back when I was 20, no, when I was 30, I think. Yeah, had six rods and two titanium, uh, six Ooh. screws and two titanium rods put in it, in the bottom. And yeah, there I had a day up in. So I had it done in November, and the surgeon was like, you know, you definitely shouldn't go snowboarding this winter. And I'd managed. I was working out there. I was running the chalet. Yeah, a day came along in February, and it was a Saturday, and it had just dumped, and I couldn't resist the urge. I've been doing re, you know, physio and swimming every day. You have to, yeah. And I was feeling good, and I was like, I just need to test this to see where I am. And I went up and had two runs, and I felt too kind of ginger about it. So I was like, okay, I know that I can do it, and it doesn't hurt, but my brain can't handle it at yeah, the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I carried on. By the end of the season, it was on. It was on. Yeah. And then there was a day up in teen in May, like one of those really late season powder days, and a whole bunch of us went up there. And we're all chopping around doing like high speed sort of powder runs and stuff. And I was just going down, I sort of went in a bump, my nose went in and I thought, right, this is the moment. If if something's going to go wrong now, it's going to go really wrong or I'm going to be 100% fine. And I was like ragdolling and I could just focus in on my back and I just thought I'm waiting for something to happen, waiting for something to happen. Stopped, nothing had happened. And I'm like, right, that's it. I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm good for the rest of my life. I think. Brilliant, brilliant. So, well, yeah. I prolapsed. I prolapsed three discs, L three, four, and five years ago as well, yeah. in just a really hard landing, yeah. and uh, and it's no problem. They wanted to rod and what's at the back. They said that we could build a titanium cage around them to that's, open them up. That's because, essentially what I've got. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and they said you'll never ride snowboard again. You'll never push bike again. You just got to accept it. And I went. Well, no, what's the alternative? They said, well, you'll never touch your toes again because the bottom section of the back won't bend because yeah. the vertebrae are too close. Yeah. And so I, I exercise. And the only disadvantage I've got, I have no problems with it whatsoever apart from sitting still or standing for any length of time. Yeah. Like plane journeys. I have to get up, even if I haven't got to go to the toilet, mm -hmm. I have to get up and move around. Yeah, you know, I can understand that. Mountain biking, snowboarding, you know, winter, anything. It's it's not a problem. Yeah, so, my surgeon just said to me, don't get fat. And yeah, I've been just, trying not to. Yeah. <laughs> we're varying degrees say, of success. I used to give an example of the difference between skiing and snowboarding, right? About being fat. Can I remember it? There was a downhill skier called Alberto Tomba. Yeah, Tomba Superb, La Bomba. Superb, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. loose cannon. 
towards the end of his career with his tight vest on, you knew where all the pies had gone, I tell you. But he was amazing. He was amazing. You don't see a good fat snowboarder. You know, it, right. it's a freestyle, freestyle snowboard, I should say. You know, you've got some who can power through. Because I always you say, I weigh nothing, right? And so I'm hitting over every single bump. You've got heavier lads, they can plow straight through it. You see what yeah. I mean? So, so they can be fast like that. But snowboarding is so much more physical. And like I said before, you know, keep snowboarding and you'll keep fit. And that's, yeah. that's my positive mental attitude. Just keep doing it. Okay. So I hope you enjoyed that. Alan Oggie Orgill, um, a proper life in snowboarding. I really enjoyed that for loads of different reasons. As I said at the top, he was one of the original kind of stories that I felt should be told just because he's just infected so many people with a positive view of snowboarding. And I think that's been really important. There probably aren't that many shop owners around the world. There's there's probably a few, but probably not that many people who have kind of got into snowboarding and have been so passionate to spend, for instance, two hours telling a customer the ins and outs of all the different facets of snowboarding and snowboarding equipment to make sure they understand what it is they're getting into and to take away the right kit that will suit them for their for their experience. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. And I've wanted to chat with him for a long time and um, I'm finally glad that this podcast gave me the opportunity to do so. So yeah, right. What else is going on? Um, it's been fairly quiet in the snowball world this week. I think there was a big competition at Mia's at, but I don't know what happened there. Um, I want to send a few shout outs. Uh, Harris Burke, uh, my mate Paul Rollo up in Scotland, his nephew has just been snowboarding to Des Alp, I think he said. Harris Burke, and apparently he's been listening to the podcast. So shout out to you, Harris. Uh, Lee Bryan's been in touch. Jay Nickel, he's going to send down some magazines. He's got a whole stash of magazines like Snowboard UK and White Lines. Um, just sorting out, sending them down. So I'll have even more content for the uh, Instagram. If you want to go and check that out, it's Thank You Snowboarding Podcast. Go and find that and give us a follow. There's loads of cool stuff on it. Last week, we put up uh, Ed Lee and Sean Lee and Stu Brass and Spencer Claridge's version of Jilted John from the movie Proper, and that got quite a lot of likes. Um, there's been some Steve Bailey love also on the Looking Sideways um, uh, Instagram, and so we we copied one of those, we nicked one of those photos, basically. I'm sure Matt doesn't mind. But, um, yeah, a lot of love for Steve Bailey, trying to track him down, see if we can get him. I imagine from how much I know Steve that he won't be that keen to sit down and talk about himself. But we will do our best. Maybe we'll get there before Matt. Speaking of Matt, he's going to be on the show next week. Matt Barr from Looking Sideways. Had a great sit down with him uh, at the end of last week. That was really cool. So you'll get that next week. Who else we got? Liam Griffin. Not Liam Griffin from The Natural Selection, but Liam Griffin. I think up there in Scotland, been chatting with him. Uh, Alex McGowan sent me the Nico Mueller section from the Nike movie Never Not. And that's a joy to see that. I mean, Nico Mueller obviously managed to get himself cancelled in spectacular fashion. He fell down the COVID rabbit hole but let's not get into that. And uh, actually saw him out in, in Larks, apparently not looking so well. Um, obviously, 
without his sponsors kicking in, he's probably had to find a bit of a life for himself. Maybe he earned enough out of snowboarding to keep himself going for a while, but he was sort of kicking around and he's been riding a lot with um, Emily Hathley. Hathley, is that the right word? That's not the right surname. A young British girl kind of coming up behind Mia. And uh, I think I posted a picture of her doing a method the other day. Um, incredible style, obviously getting a lot of that from Nico. But yeah, Nico Mueller kind of fell off. Um, I have been talking about whether snowboarding would take him back if he kind of thought about what he's been saying and maybe he's kind of come out of that rabbit hole that he fell into. I don't know. That's a bigger discussion for a different podcast, maybe, I think so. And also shout out to Fraser Rennie. I've had some messages from him. And yeah, to anyone that's listening, if you want to get in touch, then you can. You can send me a DM on the Instagram or you can get hold of me at thankyousnowboarding at gmail.com. That email address will be in the show notes. Or you can, we've been posting a lot into the UK Snowboard History Facebook group as well. Um, I hope you don't mind. I think it's Russ that runs that. I hope you don't mind me kind of hijacking it with all the stuff that we're putting up. But I don't think so. Hopefully it's all useful content and you're enjoying seeing it. Uh, What else? Uh, The music at the top of the show. Well, now this has come about. Um, I didn't intend to get this track i was looking for a move oggy didn't really mention any movies in his interview so it was left to me to think of something and i went back to an old movie called 1999 which was possibly the first absinthe movie possibly i might be really wrong on that but certainly it was made with snowboarder mag and for me as a music producer and kind of dj type person that's my day job by the way um It's got a really interesting soundtrack. The soundtrack's kind of been mixed and all the sort of snippets and sound effects and kind of um, Foley has been added in with the mix as well. It's quite interesting from that point of view. And it's a great movie. There's some sick snowboarding in it and there's some really good sections. And uh, I found the Jamiroquai track. I was going to play... What was going to play? There was either an NTM track or something else or the Beastie Boys or Luscious Jackson. But then I was just watching it and there's a section with Mickey Albin and Babs Charley. And basically it's got this track by Jamiroquai called Drifting Along. And so I thought I'd choose that also because on the Instagram, I went back the other day and there's a Jamiroquai track called Light Years that had Steve Bailey and Chris Moran and Kenty and Russell Brass. And it was put together, I think, by Christian Stevenston, also known as DJ Barbecue. Um, back when they were making Odd Man Out. And I think they took it on because obviously I think they used one of his tracks in the movie and basically it was probably a pretty well-paid gig that probably paid for some of their movie Odd Man Out as well. So long story short, yeah, kind of been on a bit of a Jamiroquai tip, um, trying to manifest something because apparently he used to be into skating before snowboarding and he obviously jumped on snowboarding quite early on. Um, so that was back in like 94, 95, something like that. So he it's possibly one of the first mainstream things of snowboarding to kind of hit the public consciousness as well. So, And I understand he now owns a chalet in San Foix, so he's obviously still going snowboarding. So I am trying to track down JK from Jamiroquai and see if we can get him on the podcast. I thought that might be an interesting one. He's obviously been in it for a long time. And it obviously... You don't just buy a chalet in Samfois for 
the change out the back of your sofa. So he's obviously some committed in some sense. So yeah, if anybody knows anybody that can put a shell in like a word in his shell and try and get him on the podcast, that'd be amazing. If not, I'll have to try and do the legwork myself. Um, so yeah, where else are we? We've done some shout outs, housekeeping corner, the YouTube channel, that film 1999. I'll put that at the top of the shred flicks playlist on our YouTube channel, which again is thank you snowboarding. And I think that might be where we're at for now. Um, as I say, yeah, we've got still got some interesting episodes coming up. We're trying to lock down a second kind of a catch-up interview with Vicky and Nigel Brooks along with Mia just to find out what went down at X Games and how things are panning out. And they look like they're panning out rather nicely. And Nigel's also been a bit more... He's sort of been in the public eye a bit. He had a few interviews over the X Games, so that's pretty cool. So I want to talk to him about that before I put their episode out. So that's coming. As I say, we've got Matt Barr from Looking Sideways. That's in the can. And um, yeah, we've got a few more episodes to go until we sort of maybe have a little pause in the spring. And um, yeah, so it's all good in the world of snowboarding, I would say. Snowboarding is good. Um, I hope you've managed to get yourself out there so far. If not, I hope you've got a trip planned. If you haven't got a trip planned, then there's going to be deals. There's going to be killer deals, I imagine, going around for travel. Um, snow's a bit hit and miss in some places. So there's going to be people panicking and trying to sell holidays really cheap. So if you haven't been snowboarding, get yourself online get a trip booked. You won't regret doing it. You will only regret not doing it. I think that's the point of this podcast is to make you remember that. It doesn't have to cost a fortune. There's going to be killer deals with lift passes and flights. And if you can get it, the train rather than flying because flying's bullshit, but do what you can go snowboarding. If you can, um, you'll thank me later. All right. That's where we're at. I'm just rambling now. So I'm going to go, uh, peace out. See you next week. Ciao.